Our text for today comes to us from Esther chapter 6. Listen now for a word from God. On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of records, the annals, and they were read to the king. It was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, and who had conspired to assassinate King Ahasuerus. Then the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's servants who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. The king said, Who's in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. So the king's servants told him, Haman is there, standing in the court. The king said, let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, what shall be done for the man whom the king wishes to honor? Haman said to himself, well, whom would the king wish to honor more than me? So Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king wishes to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and a horse that the king has ridden with a royal crown on its head. Let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let him robe the man whom the king wishes to honor, and let him conduct the man on horseback through the open square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done for the man whom the king wishes to honor. Then the king said to Haman, quickly, Take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to the Jew Mordecai, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse and robed Mordecai and led him riding through the open square of the city, proclaiming, Thus shall it be done for the man whom the king wishes to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. When Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him, his advisors and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom your downfall has begun, is of the Jewish people, you will not prevail against him, but will surely fall before him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Good and loving God, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for this time set aside to listen. God, I pray whatever words you would have for us today would be from you and not from me. In Jesus' name, amen. So I think Pastor Sarah said that the book of Esther is a book about coincidence. Coincidence. Y'all think of a time when you had a coincidence happen to you? You don't have to shout them out, but just nod of heads, yeah. You've experienced coincidence, right? It's when a couple of things happen, sometimes more than two, and it's just like this crazy turn of events that like this led to this, led to this, led to this, and then I, I ended up getting the exact thing I wanted, or <laughs> I, I actually didn't get the thing that I wanted. It all turned upside down on me, right? Coincidence. Frederick Beekner, the uh, famous... Uh, sort of spiritual writer once said that coincidence is God's way of remaining anonymous. It's God's way of working in the background. That God works through these mysterious coincidences to work in our lives. 
coincidence. I'll tell you about the craziest coincidence that I could think of from, from my life. So I, when, I was, uh, when I first went to college, I was actually a student athlete, so I, I ran cross country, and I wasn't a very good student athlete. I, I wasn't a very good student, and I wasn't a very good athlete. I was, I was actually terrible at both of them. <laughs> and my mother sort of had a talk with me, um, the, the kind of talks that mothers have with their sons, and said, you know, you really ought to focus on one thing. <laughs> and uh, it, running is not going to be your gift, Garrett, so you may want to focus on school so that uh, you have a life after college, you know? And, and, I, and I listened to her, and I actually stopped running cross-country to focus on my studies because my grades had fallen so low. And during, during the course of me kind of changing my mind about school and really focusing, I came across this wonderful program that really caught my attention. And it was this, it was this program at Oxford University, if you've, if you've heard of Oxford, um, that allowed American students to come during their senior year of college and, and essentially see what they could make of the experience. A lot of times it led to PhD work, it led to a life in academia, it, it led to a lot of things that at the time I thought, ah, this is, this is what I want to do. And so I set my sights on that when, you know, I really didn't have the grades, but I thought it's, it's a good thing to work for. So I started working, and I, and I, I began to, to really bring my grades up, and I arrived at my, my senior year, and I had just barely, barely, barely made the cut to apply. You had to have, like, a, I think, like, a 3.5 GPA to apply, and, and I, I mean, I'm telling you, I barely had that. Um, and so I, I was going to be able to make my application, but I thought it's still weak because I really haven't been a great student my, my whole life, and so I, I need to do something that makes it stronger. And so I got the idea through a series of events that I, I won't tell you about, but if, if you want to take me out to coffee sometime, I'd love to share this story. I, I ended up arriving at a, uh, a monastery in the middle of Germany, <laughs> living with a group of nuns. And I, I've probably told you bits of this story before, but, you know, I, I, I went to the monastery for a couple of reasons. One, I was sort of in spiritual crisis. I didn't really know what I believed. I had been raised in the evangelical church and had really moved away from a lot of what they were teaching. And I, and I was soul-searching, but I was also trying to make a really good application to this wonderful school that I wanted to go to. And I thought, if I learn German, and I learn to read German, and I have this diverse experience, well, maybe, maybe my application will be made stronger. So I showed up at, at the monastery, and on the first day, everyone who visits the monastery, they have to meet with the abbess. And you have this, it was like a 90-minute conversation with the abbess where you essentially talk about spirituality, what are you doing there, what are you seeking, right? And, and she asked me all these questions, and this was the conversation I had with her where she also asks what, uh, what you want to do for work while you're there. And um, she asked me, like, so what are some of the chores that you're interested in? And I said, well, I love, you know, gardening. I love working outside. I, you know, I need something physical to do. And then she asked me, you know, well, what don't you like doing? And I said, dishes. I do not want to do dishes. And so she put me on double dish duty the rest of the summer. <laughs> and she told me during the course of that conversation, she said, Garrett, you try to find God in the midst of washing the dishes. Yes, Abbas. <laughs> During the course of that conversation, she also said, well, what, tell me about your plans for after this. And I told her a lot about this Oxford program that I was going to apply to and that I really wanted to get into. And she just kind of nodded along and said, well, that, that's really nice. I hope you find what you're looking for. 
And so a few weeks went by, and after chapel one day, one of the sisters came up to me, and she said, Brother Garrett, they call me Brother Garrett, which I just loved, but they call me Brother Garrett, hey, do you want to go for a walk with me sometime? I've heard all these wonderful things about you, and, and I hear you're interested in studying abroad and this and this, and I said, sure, we, we can take a walk. And so we, we go on this walk through the woods, and it, it was like a three-hour walk that we took. We had so much in common. She was an American. Uh, we had some mutual friends at various universities that she was associated with, and, and we just, we really hit it off. And at near the end of the conversation, we're walking through these impossibly beautiful woods around this castle where the monastery was. And she turns to me, and she says, you know, the abbess mentioned that you were looking at a program at Oxford University. Can you tell me about that? So I tell her all about it, and I'm like, oh, this, this program's wonderful. You know, it does this and this and this, and, and you know, it, it's going to allow me to do this, and I know who I want to study with, and I want to, you know, and I'm, I'm so excited. And she's listening and listening, and then she stops, and she gets this big, big grin on her face, and she looks at me, and she says, you know, that's so funny, Brother Garrett, because I... Let's put a pin in that real quick, okay? Pastor Sarah told me some of you are going to be upset that I, I didn't finish that story yet, but hold on, hold on. We never know how stories are going to end, do we? We never know. I mean, you, you might be able to guess, like if you watch a lot of Netflix or um, TV, I, you know, you, you can pretty much predict the tropes that these writers are going through. You can kind of see what's going to happen, but you really don't know, do you? And I always think the best stories are the stories that you think you know what's going to happen, and then the writer, the director, they just take it and they, they twist it, and everything is upside down. We never know how our stories are going to end. So in our text for today, we began at chapter 6. And uh, to, to catch you up to speed on what's going on in the text, you know, um, we learn that Mordecai has foiled this plot to kill the king. And he, he did this a few chapters ago. He had heard a couple people talking at the gate that they were going to, you know, kill the king. And he told the right people, and he ends up saving the king's life. And this is recorded in the book of the Chronicles. And it's sort of stashed away and forgotten about. And so Mordecai goes on with his life. The king goes on with his partying life and having these feasts that last 180 days and Time goes on. Well, this, this guy Haman is appointed in the meantime as what's essentially prime minister. And the prime minister of the country was really second in command. And there was the king, but the king's more of a centerpiece. You know, the king really, if you read the text closely, the king has no idea what's going on ever. He just tells other people what to do. And so the, Haman is really the, the person that is in charge of the whole kingdom. And Haman really likes being prime minister because he's got quite the ego on him. And one of the things, one of the benefits of being prime minister is that uh, when you walk around and you pass people, they have to bow to you, right? Have any of you ever had someone bow to you? <laughs> be, it'd be a really weird thing, but he, he really liked this. He really wanted people to bow to him, and, and he was enjoying it. Well, everywhere he went, you know, people would follow this law except for at the king's gate, and there was one guy who was always sitting at the king's gate that would never, ever bow down to him when he passed. And Haman, to give him a little bit of credit here, he doesn't notice this at first. He doesn't notice that this guy is not bowing, but 
a couple of the guards at the gate do notice, and they say to the guy that's at the gate, it's actually Mordecai, they say to Mordecai, hey, why don't you ever bow to the prime minister when he's coming through here? And Mordecai, he, he doesn't say this, but he, he essentially cites religious reasons. So I, I don't do that. And it's, it's sort of implied that, you know, he will only bow to God. He's only subservient to God. Now, I know we've said that God is not mentioned in the book of Esther, but it's, it's between the lines there. And so the guards say this to Haman. They say to Haman, hey, there's this guy. He says he doesn't bow to anybody except for God. And Haman decides to test Mordecai on this. And so he walks by the gate a couple times, and he sees what these guys are saying is true. Haman, excuse me, Mordecai does not bow to anyone. And so Haman asks Mordecai, like, hey, what's this about? I'm the prime minister. You're supposed to bow to me. You're supposed to do, this is the custom. This is the law of the king, Mordecai. Why aren't you obeying it? And Mordecai cites religious reasons and says, look, I, I don't bow to anybody but God. This really gets Haman fired up, you know, because he, he needs every single person in the kingdom to bow to him. And if every single person in the kingdom does not bow to him, well, the whole world has just been, you know, you know uh, well, it's just gone into chaos. <laughs> Law and order is out the window because one person is just not bowing to the second in command. And so he hatches this scheme, and his scheme is that he's going to get some legislation passed through the king, who's really absent-minded and drunk all the time. He's going to get some legislation passed that essentially allows him to commit genocide on the entire Jewish people because one person did not bow. One person chooses to disrespect him, and he's going to punish everybody. Sounds like some legislators that we're reading about in the news recently. So we arrive at chapter 6, and it's the night. It says that night in the text. That's how chapter 6 opens. That night. And that night is the night before this new law is going to set, you know, become, become law, I guess. What do they call it? They, there's a word for that. Um, anyway, it takes effect. And... It just so happens that that night before the law is going to take effect, that the king gets this sudden attack of insomnia. He, j he just can't sleep. He just can't sleep. And so he, he goes to his throne room, and he's sitting down, and he tells one of the scribes, he says, oh, I can't sleep. Can you bring me the most boring book that you have, the most boring scroll that you have, and just read it to me, and, you know, I'll I guess I'll fall asleep eventually. And so the scribe goes in, he pulls one of the scrolls down, and he begins to read. And it just so happens that the scroll that he pulls tells the story about how the king's life was saved. You know, the king, being who the king is, has no recollection of this. <laughs> you know, he's sort of being reminded of it in the moment. Oh, yeah, that guy did save my life, didn't he? And then he asks the scribe, he says, well, what have we done for this person? Has anything been done for the guy that saved my life? And everyone in the court says, no, we didn't do anything. <laughs> now, out in, the, out in the, this is in the throne room, out in the court, a little bit further out, the king sees someone kind of pacing back and forth, and it's Haman. And Haman is so, so excited because his law is getting ready to take its effect, and he, he wants to announce it with this big show of, of basically humiliating Mordecai. And in, in some translations, it says they're going to hang him on the gallows. and others, it's he's going to impale him on a pike. Whatever it is, he's going to publicly execute him 
and embarrass him and send a message to everyone in the kingdom that you, you better bow down to me. And so he's so excited that he, he can't wait. He's waiting for first light so that he can ask the king, hey, can we do it now? Can we do it now? I mean, he's like a kid at, at Christmas waiting for the parents to wake up. And so the king sees him kind of pacing back and forth, and he says, oh, there's, there's Haman. Hey, bring him in here. Haman, get in here. Get in here. And so Haman comes in. He's really excited. I mean, this is earlier than he thought he was going to be able to do it. He's going to catch Mordecai off guard. And so he walks in, and the king says to him, Haman, what should we do for the person the king wishes to honor? And in the text, it says, Haman says in his heart, well, who would the king want to honor besides me? And so he starts thinking to himself, well, what, what would I want the king to do to honor me? Well, I'd want royal robes. That would be great. And, oh, I'd probably want a crown to wear on my head. That would be awesome. I've always wanted to wear a crown. Uh, maybe I'd want a horse, too, a royal horse, not one of those common horses that other people ride. And I'd want the horse, too. The horse would need to be draped in these royal robes. And wouldn't it be great if the horse was wearing a crown, too, just like the king? It's this absolutely absurd show of, of uh, it's just pomp and circumstance. He wants everyone to know how important he is. And so he tells the king all of this. He says, I want robes, I want a crown, I want this horse to have robes and a crown, and I want to be paraded all around the city so everyone knows how great I am. And the king says, great, I need you to go do that for the guy Mordecai that's sitting by the gate. Haman's mortal enemy, the guy that wouldn't bow down to him. And so Haman does as he's told. And he goes and he dresses Mordecai up, he puts the robes on him, and he puts him in a crown, and then he dresses the horse in royal robes in a crown, and then he leads him around the city, proclaiming that this is the one that the king wishes to honor. This is really the turning point of the entire story because pretty much the legislation had passed Pretty much Mordecai's life was over. Esther is actually working in the background here trying to get a banquet so that she can connect with the king and say, hey, you don't understand the effects of this law that's going into, into effect soon, and, and I need you to know that because my people are going to die. So she's scrambling and has really given up even saving Mordecai at this point, but the story just turns. And if you keep reading, you'll read that Haman... Um, not only is humiliated by parading Mordecai around when that's his mortal enemy, but eventually he is put on the same gallows that he hoped Mordecai would hang on. His entire story is flipped upside down. At just the moment when we thought everything was lost. You never know how the story is going to turn out. I know a lot of you have been paying attention to the news recently, and you've probably seen, uh, I know I've talked about it from up here, the terrible legislation that's getting passed in Florida and other states that is taking away the rights of uh, our friends and family in the LGBTQ community. You've already seen all of the stuff that's happening with Roe versus Wade and that being overturned and 
the powers that be further taking away the rights of women. It seems like it's just the beginning. I'm sure there's more that's going to come. The rights and the freedoms, they'll keep going after them. You might be worried about this. You probably should be. I'm worried about it. But you still don't know how the story is going to turn out. You don't know until it's over. When I was with Sister Macrina, we were walking through the woods. I was telling her all about this program in Oxford. She turned to me and she said, it's so funny that you mentioned that program, Brother Garrett, because you know what? I created that program. I created it with my friend Sam, and Sam's actually the program director, and I would love to help you with your application, and I would love to set up a meeting between you and Sam, and I would love to help you succeed. And I'm standing in these woods <laughs> in the middle of Germany, and I just started weeping. I had worked so hard, and I knew I really didn't have a chance unless God intervened. <laughs> And there we are. We never know how our stories are going to turn out. You know, in the book of Esther, the the name of God isn't mentioned at all. And some people have said, maybe we just need to throw it out because it doesn't really mention God. Maybe it doesn't have much to do with God. I mean, what are we doing with it? But I would argue that just because it seems like God's not working doesn't mean that God is not up to something. Just because the name of God isn't written all over the events or God doesn't seem to be showing up in very obvious ways, that doesn't mean that God isn't working. Buechner said, after all, anonymity, excuse me, coincidence is God's way of remaining anonymous. We might like to think we know how the story is going to end. We might like to think that we have it figured out. We might... (laughs) Do that to protect ourselves. But I think the encouragement from the book of Esther, from these stories, from stories from our own lives, is that we don't know the ending until we live it. And so it's important that we sit in that tension as much as we can, and we keep the faith, and we keep doing what we're called to do, and we watch to see what God is up to next. Let's pray. Good and loving God, thank you for coincidence. Thank you for the story of Esther. And thank you for working in the background in places that are anonymous and unseen. Lord, I pray that you would give us the faith to watch for the ending that you are writing in the story of the world. God, calm our fears and our nerves. Give us the courage to answer your call. God, give us the courage to to sit and to wait. In Jesus' name, amen.